The following sermon was delivered by Associate Pastor Sarah A. Speed in the Sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person, or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here's Reverend Speed. Friends, for the last few weeks, we have been looking at key words in our faith's vocabulary, the words tattooed to our hearts. Today, I have been invited to preach on the word glory. I learned this week that glory shows up 376 times in the Old Testament and 230 times in the New Testament, which is a lot of glory. I also learned this week that many Christians believe you cannot say the word glory during Lent, choosing to abstain from that word until the joy of Easter. So if you fall in that camp and are a Lenten rule follower, then first of all, bravo. And second of all, I want to apologize because I'm about to say the word glory like 700 times in the next hour. Fortunately for us, I'm pretty sure Jesus will still love us in the end. So here's to breaking some rules together, to talking about God's glory. Today's scripture passage is longer because the Gospel of John loves its long, dramatic stories. So to help us dive into this text, I have invited a few readers who can come forward to help read the text with me. What we are going to read together is actually selected verses from the New Living Translation, which is smoother on the ears, easier to hear. What you have in your bulletin is the NRSV. So if you are joining us in this room or online, I encourage you to just listen as we read and then use what you have in your bulletin to reference throughout the sermon. Friends, before we turn to God's word, let us pray together. God of the here and now, as we prepare to hear your word read aloud in scripture, I ask that you would clear space on the canvases of our heart. Clear space so that we might absorb your word more than before. Clear space so that we might have room to write your name. Clear space so that goodness can take root in our lives once more. In your name we gratefully pray. Amen. Reading from the chapter, uh, from the Gospel of John, chapter 11. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother, Lazarus, was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, Lazarus' illness will not end in death. Rather, it is for God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, He stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to the disciples, Let's go back to Judea. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. 
Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but the disciples thought he was referring merely to sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Come, let us go see him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to console them on their loss. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. But Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench, because he has been dead for four days. Jesus responded, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. I know that you are always hear, hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of the crowd standing here so that you may believe that you sent me. When Jesus had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the people who were there believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. To God. There were three things that everyone knew about my grandfather, my mom's dad. He loved Jesus, he loved our family, and he loved trains. My grandfather, a retired Presbyterian minister, had this insane ability to identify what kind of train he could hear coming down the track, where it was likely coming from and headed to from the whistle alone. As a kid, he would hop trains, riding locomotives through the countryside of Virginia, always catching a train home before dinner. By the time he was a young adult, he had memorized the train map of the United States, and his idea of an ideal family picnic would be all of us gathered around, sitting in camping chairs in the gravel of the train yard, watching trains come and go. 
So as a child, I knew that my grandfather loved Jesus, he loved us grandkids, and he loved his trains. My grandfather passed away from complications with Parkinson's disease when I was in college. The first time the family gathered together after the funeral was for Christmas. It was always our tradition to gather together for the holidays, but that first year was different. We were keenly aware of who was no longer at the table, and that truth, that grief hung around my family like a fog. So I'll never forget that first evening together. After hours of small talk and tearful reminiscing, we circled up for dinner, forming a winding path around the kitchen island as we held hands to bless the food. All 30 of us, aunts, uncles, cousins, closed our eyes and bowed our heads to receive the dinner blessing. And there, in that split moment of silence, a train whistle blew. I didn't even know that we were near train tracks, and it was probably just a beautiful coincidence. But in an instant, that ordinary kitchen felt like holy ground. In an instant, it felt like God was all around us. We had been heavy with grief all day, but when that train whistle blew, it felt like God was saying to us, I'm here, I'm here. I know you miss him, but you're not alone. So we laughed and we hugged and one of my cousins said, somewhere, somehow, I think both God and granddaddy must be in this room. Friends, if I had to guess, I think that's what God's glory feels like. God's glory is not often something you can touch or hold, but it will change the way you see the world in a heartbeat. God's glory will turn an ordinary room into holy ground. God's glory will turn grief into laughter. I think glory is a word that scripture uses us to tell us that God is near. And there's nothing I'd rather tattoo on my heart than that. Our text for today is full of this glory. You heard it. The chapter opens up by telling us that Jesus' dear friend Lazarus has fallen ill. Lazarus' sister Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick, saying, The one whom you love is ill. But Jesus does not share their same sense of urgency. Instead, as we would say in the South, Jesus dilly-dallies. He tells his disciples, this illness is not for death, rather it is for God's glory. By the time Jesus arrives in Bethany a few days later, Lazarus has already died. He's been wrapped in cloth and laid to rest in a tomb. And as was Jewish custom in the community, the whole village had gathered around Mary and Martha, staying at their home, grieving with them, clustered around that kitchen island. When Jesus finally does show up, the text tells us that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now that note is not an insignificant detail. 
You see, there is Jewish wisdom that taught that the soul did not fully leave the body until day four. The Talmud, a source of Jewish tradition, describes it by saying, for three days the soul returns to the grave, thinking it will return into the body. When, however, it sees that the color of the face has changed, in other words, when the body begins to decompose, then the soul goes away and leaves the body. So Jesus shows up, and he says to Martha, where have you laid my friend? And Martha responds by saying, Jesus, if you'd been here, he'd still be alive. But it's been four days. And if I understand the text, I think what she's really saying here is his soul is gone. Decay has started. There is no chance of resurrection here, not even for you who can walk on water and feed 5,000. There is no glory in this story. Jesus, there is nothing you can do. But nothing is impossible for God, is it? So there in front of Martha and the entire community of mourners, Jesus walks to the grave. The whole village follows as he tells them to roll back the stone. And the crowd reminds him once again, Jesus, it's been four days. To which Jesus responds, unbind him. And in a goose bump worthy moment, Jesus says what only Jesus can. Lazarus, come out. For all that excitement, for all that rising action, John doesn't give us a lot of details on what happens next. After 45 verses of drama, John moves on. The gospel writer doesn't describe in detail how Lazarus rubbed his eyes from sleep, shades his face from the bright sun, or trips over his bed sheets as he stumbles out of the tomb. John doesn't describe how Mary and Martha might have fallen to their knees, weeping happy tears. John doesn't describe how Jesus may have embraced Lazarus in a bear hug, pulling him into his arms and saying, welcome back, old friend. We get no details at the end of this story. The only thing we know is that Lazarus walked and people believed. But I bet, I bet that one of the disciples said, oh, this is what Jesus meant when he said glory. Because I bet it felt like holy ground. And I'm sure their mourning turned to laughing. And I'm sure that someone said, somehow God is here. You see, friends, I think God's glory is the felt presence of God in our lives. The word glory is used widely and liberally in scripture. Sometimes it's a synonym for heaven. Sometimes it's a word of praise. Sometimes it's a characteristic attributed to God. But often, often, glory is used to describe God's presence. For example, in Exodus chapter 16, the text tells us, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. 
Later, when Moses meets God, God describes God's own presence by saying, My glory will pass by you. Similarly, at Christ's birth, Luke tells us, An angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Scripture often uses the word glory to tell us that God is near. So when Jesus says, if you believe you will see the glory of God, I think Jesus is saying to the disciples, God is near. God has been here the whole time. God's fingerprints are all over the place and I want you to see it. I want you to see it. I want you to believe it because God's glory will turn an ordinary room into holy ground. And God's glory will turn grief into laughter. God's glory is the part of God that spills out into the cracks of our days and gives us a glimpse of what could be. If I understand the text, glory is a word that scripture uses to tell us that God is near. Have you ever had one of those moments? When I was a youth pastor before working here at Fifth Avenue, I would take a group of teenagers to the Montreat Youth Conference in North Carolina. Our groups would stay in these long dorm-like hallways and we would spend our week bopping around between small group and worship, hiking and meals together. One year on the second day of the conference, I realized that one of my students, Liza, who was new to the group, was not at breakfast. I sent a gaggle of senior high girls upstairs to check on her as I tried to wrangle the rest of the group to our morning activity. When the girls got to Liza's room, they found that Liza was still in bed. And we learned that day that Liza had spent several weeks in the hospital for severe depression. She had been discharged right before the trip and had been doing better, but something about the conference wristbands felt like a hospital wristband, and something about that dorm hallway felt like a hospital hallway, and she was spiraling. She couldn't get out of bed. The students knew they couldn't fix her depression, but they thought maybe they could change the way the hallway looked. So they raided my supply bag and they got to work. They started hanging up streamers down the side of the hallway and they made posters that they hung on the wall that said things like, today's gonna be a good day. They covered everyone's door with post-it note affirmation and hung up balloons in the archway that led to our part of the building. And when they were done, they went and knocked on Liza's door and said, Liza, come out. And she came out and stood at the threshold and looked at that hallway that looked much more like a birthday party than a hospital wing. And for the first time that day, she smiled. And y'all, I could feel God's glory. Because in that moment, I knew that we were standing on holy ground. Liza cried and hugged those girls, and together they huddled up and offered words of encouragement. 
And it didn't make Liza's depression go away. But for a moment, Liza knew that she was not alone, and that mattered. And for a moment, those teenagers knew that they were being the church. And for a moment, we all knew that God was near, and that mattered. Looking back on that day, I didn't use the word glory in the moment, but I would certainly use it now. For standing there in that decorated hallway, I knew life was stronger than death. And when God feels that close, there's no better word to use than glory. You have to tattoo it to your heart. Friends, we live in a world that will try to convince you that God is a million miles away, but I don't believe it. I don't believe it because I've heard the train whistle blow. And I've seen Liza come out of her room, and I have felt God's presence in my own life. And when you have those moments, you have to tattoo them to your heart. You have to tattoo God's glory, God's closeness to your heart, because there will be days when you lose someone you love, or when the depression feels like it's going to win, or when you realize that the tomb has been closed for too long. And on those days, we need to reach back within ourselves and remember the times when God felt close. Friends, Jesus knew that hard days were coming when he showed up in Mary and Martha's house. The chapter that follows the raising of Lazarus is Palm Sunday, which means that Jesus knew he was running out of time. Jesus knew that the cross was coming, and I think Jesus knew that the disciples would need a glimpse of God's glory to carry them through. So he went to the tomb, and he told Lazarus to come out right there in front of the crowd. And I think that he did all of that so that in a few days when he breathed his last breath, the disciples would still have glory tattooed to their hearts. Church, I don't know everything that you carry with you, but I do know that God is closer than we think. So for the good days and the bad days, tattoo that good news to your heart. For the glory of the Lord shone around them, and it shines around us. So thanks be to God for a love like that. Amen. Family of faith, there will be hard days where the world will try to tell you that God is out of reach. On those days, remember Lazarus. Remember how the glory of the Lord shone around them. Remember that God is always closer than we think. And tattoo that to your heart. And as you leave this place, may you love as if love is not a scarcity. May you hope like there is a better tomorrow. May you live like we belong to one another, because we do. And may you trust that nothing can separate you from the love of God. So in the name of the lover, the beloved, and love itself, go now in peace. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give.
Thank you and blessings to you on this day.